0: Well hello church, happy Sunday to you. My name is Paul Kepes, I'm one of the elders here at Northbrook, and please let me just welcome you and thank you for coming out and celebrating with us today on this beautiful day. If you're joining us online, I also want to extend a warm welcome to you as well. It's my privilege to open up God's word with you today from our summer series, True Story, The Power in Telling God's. We're going to go on a journey through Daniel 3, the image of gold in the fiery furnace. When Mike first asked me to speak this summer, he asked me if I wanted to pick one of the stories. And I just felt prompted to stay out of it and just let the Lord lead. So instead, I simply gave him dates that worked best for my schedule, and I told him I would take the story that was assigned to that week. And my heart has been stirring ever since. And that's because Daniel 3 is one of the most relevant, one of the most challenging stories in the Bible for the times that we are in today. I love the picture in the lobby of Daniel 3. It's powerful. And I went to Google to see if I could find any other pictures that could even further capture the intensity and the heaviness of this story. And I came across this one. (laughs) (laughs) I wish I could preach today on that picture It'd be a lot more fun and a lot easier But it's not what the Lord would have for us I share with you that preparing for this sermon hasn't been easy I've never spent more time and more prayer than I have for this message Because if there was ever a time for prayer Is it not now? It reminds me of this ship that was sinking and the captain called everyone on deck and he says, does anyone know how to pray? And this man kind of made his way from the back and he says, I do, captain. I know how to pray. And the captain said, good, because we're one life jacket short and so you pray while we all put on the life jackets and hopefully we all get out of here okay. (laughs) There is nothing like prayer when it's so desperately needed. I also want to ask a favor of you this morning. Will you hang in there with me through this message? Because some of it's going to be challenging and hard to hear, but I ask that you give me a hearing to the end so I can tie it all together. And one of the things I love about North Park Church is we're not afraid of hard things. Daniel 3 is also motivating and inspiring and an encouraging story. And my hope is that it will be the same for you. Because the truth is, we can all use some encouragement. We look around, and there's a growing sense that something is very wrong. We seem to be moving in the wrong direction, and things only seem to be getting worse. And it's almost impossible to read today's headlines without thinking of Isaiah's words. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. How true is this today? The West is becoming increasingly secular where looking good, hear me, and feeling good has replaced being good and doing good and we don't know the difference anymore. Gallup has been polling Americans on this simple question, do you believe in God since 1944? The trend is not good. We've been on the decline since the 60s. And in the last 10 years, we've been dropping like a rock. Today, only four in 10 Americans believe there is a God who intervenes in this world. We are tripping over ourselves to kick him out of every corner of society. And we are seeing the logical outworkings of a no-god culture. And that's because nature abhors a vacuum. And when you take God out of the picture, our feet become firmly planted in midair and everything then becomes permissible. God's design for man and woman is under attack. The Bible says male and female, he created them. The nuclear family, the most stabilizing force in civilization for good, is losing its standing and relevance. Honor your father and your mother God's design for sex and sexuality has been distorted and perverted. Each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. Life is under attack. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And even truth is under attack. I am the truth. Slavery is at an all-time high with some 50 million slaves in the world today. Many whom are in the hellishing industry of the sex trafficking business. Hatred and division are on the rise. And God, I just want to pray right now. We sing songs like to break our hearts for what breaks yours. And Lord, maybe we need to be careful what we wish for because sometimes our hearts just break too much. We pray for healing, Lord, your healing hand on this land. We pray for revival in this church. We pray for the hurting people who are lost in suffering. Would you anoint your servant today? I need your words. Holy Spirit, invade this place. Challenge us for what you would have in store. Not that we might feel ashamed or to feel bad, but Lord, to just be encouraged and to, be, to know what truly means to live for you, and to follow you, Jesus. In your name I pray, amen. Like today, Daniel 3 is also a story of heavy times. King Nebuchadnezzar ruled over Babylon, the largest city in the ancient world. He was an arrogant and ambitious king, and he invaded Jerusalem for the first of three times, first one in 605 B.C., taking thousands of prisoners with them 600 miles back east to Babylon. And among them were four men of the royal family of David, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And what I'd like to do today is to share with you what I think are three key takeaways that run through this story, three lessons that we can apply to our everyday lives. The first one is this. Please make a note of it. Obedience doesn't count the cost. Obedience doesn't count the cost. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stood firm in their faith in the face of death. I read to you now some excerpts starting in verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. This statue was gigantic. It's about 90 feet tall. The lady in the Statue of Liberty is about 111 feet tall. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all of the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. Jumping down to verse 4, Then the herald loudly proclaimed, Nations and peoples of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will be immediately thrown into a blazing furnace. And moving to verse 8, at this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, may the king live forever. Your majesty has issued a decree that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. Let me pause here. Let us consider the similarities of Daniel 3 and today. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego grew up surrounded by many others who believed in God, but now find themselves in a place that isn't very godly anymore. Times were heavy then as they are now. Nations were in great conflict. Slavery was on the rise. But I think the most relevant similarity and the one I want to spend the most time on this morning is that they were told they were forced to believe something that went against their faith. They were told they must think this way or else. We're not seeing the same thing today. You won't see this written down anywhere, and you won't find anyone saying it out loud quite like this. But if we were to try to put it into words, it might sound something like this we the self-anointed elites of society have determined for you the right answers to all the complex ethical questions of our day. And you will agree with us and think the same way we do or else. And you will not only tolerate these things, you will affirm them or, and celebrate them or we will cancel you. One way or another we will make you pay. You are not allowed to debate this. You aren't even allowed to ask questions. Your job is just to submit. That's precisely where Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego found themselves as well. They were forced to bow down and affirm something that went against their faith or else faced great consequences. You see, Nebuchadnezzar did not build this statue for artistic reasons or to show off his wealth and power. No. That statue was made for a specific purpose. It was about total submission. It was a test of obedience from his subjects. And so what are we to do as Christians with all that? Is it all about believing in God? I James gets a little snarky in chapter 2, verses 18 and 19. He says, "'Show me your faith without deeds. "'I'll show you my faith by my deeds. "'You believe there is that one God. "'Good.'" Even the demons believe that and they shudder. You don't see a lot of sarcasm in the Bible. This one's on full display here. He even whips out the exclamation point, which we don't see a ton of. You believe in one God. That's real nice. That's cute. I'm happy for you. So do demons. What else you got? Yet there are Christian thinkers today that would say our only obligation is just that, Don't stick your neck out there too much. It's not where Christians belong. Eric Metaxas wrote a book last year titled Letter to the American Church where he basically issues a clarion call for the church to wake up. It's a sobering read. And it's a bit sensational at times but he sadly makes some really fair points that are hard to hear. Metaxas argues in his book against sociologist James Davison Hunter because Hunter wrote a book to change the world and argued that what was needed was something he referred to as faithful presence, that the church shouldn't be too bold about what it believes and proclaims, that it would be wiser to keep a bit quiet and not actively engage too much with the world around us. St. Francis of Assisi is attributed for saying, preach the gospel wherever you go and only use words when necessary. I used to love that quote. I don't love that quote so much anymore. Can it really be enough to tell the piggly wiggly cashier to have a blessed day or to wave someone on at a stop sign with a smile? It's kind of like that thing that sounds really good at first until you pause and think about it for a minute. It reminds me of this veterinarian who also opened up a taxidermy business in his shop. He put a sign on his wall that says, either way, you get your dog back. (laughs) I understand what a sissy is saying. I get it. But I think it unintentionally also takes us off the hook from God's more difficult commands to engage with the world? Is there any other competing voice in culture that's not using words? Every other worldview in the public square is shouting with megaphones, where is the body of Christ in the public square? And please hear me. I am not saying that we shouldn't tell the Piggly Wiggly cashier to have a blessed day or to show some courtesy on the road. My wife reminds me of that one from time to time. It's not that hard to use turn signals. I'm also not saying that we shouldn't serve in food shelters or clean up parks, or pay it forward at Starbucks. These are all amazing things. God loves us when we do them because they're also commanded by us to love our neighbor. So what I am saying is, have you ever noticed that we tend to obey God's commands that tend to be easier, more safe, and more comfortable? When people love what we're doing, sometimes even shower us with praise. But what about the harder commands like telling strangers about the love of Jesus and what it means to follow him? Or standing firm in your faith against public opinion? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were willing to do the hard stuff too. We don't get to pick and choose. Thomas Jefferson uh, took a razor blade to his Bible. He cut out all the parts he didn't like. Saying yes to God doesn't work like that. We're supposed to care more about what God thinks of us instead of what man thinks of us. Romans 12.2 Do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God what is good and acceptable and perfect. Eric Metaxas also wrote a book in 2010 on the biography of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. You'll remember that Bonhoeffer was the German pastor who stood up against the atrocities of Adolf Hitler and Nazism. The book, a very thick biography about someone who died 80 years ago on another continent. It sold over a million copies and translated in 19 languages. It's been number, number one bestseller on the New York Times list. Why is his story so compelling and so captivating? Because it's a story of inspiring and authentic faith. A story that says yes to God. A story of courage to take a stand against evil regardless of the price. We see this profound authenticity in other lives as well. William Wilberforce, who led England and ultimately the West out of slavery. William Wallace, otherwise known as Braveheart. Martin Luther King Jr. Men like these were paying zero attention to the cost In the case of Bonhoeffer the cost was death. He was captured by the Gestapo and sent to the concentration camp of Flossenburg. He was found guilty without witnesses or a defense. And in April nineteen forty five he was stripped naked and executed by hanging, less than one month before the Germans surrendered to the Allied forces. The success of this book has prompted the making of a movie, and Monica and I have the privilege of being a part of that effort. The film is currently in post-production and it'll be released uh, in the spring as a major motion picture and maybe we could all go see it together. Our family also had the privilege of traveling overseas to be on the set and we even got to be extras in the film, something we weren't too sure about, but here's a picture of us as a family. There we are. (laughs) Okay, take that down. (laughs) We spent all day in that church. It was the pivotal moment as God would have it It was the scene where Bonhoeffer would declare war against the German church Chastising them for their inaction And for sitting on the sidelines amid so much injustice around them Bonhoeffer wrote some very challenging things Was perhaps most famous for saying this Silence in the face of evil is itself evil God will not hold us guiltless Not to speak is to speak Not to act is to act. How hard are those words to hear? Is it possible that not doing something could be evil? That's hard stuff. Every decision we make or don't make shapes our character. What kind of person do we want to be? How would we want someone to describe us at our eulogy when that appointment with the Lord comes one day? Just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Bonhoeffer's faith was so strong that he had only one choice. But what if he didn't speak out? What if he played it safe? Is there a cost to silence German sociologist Elizabeth Noel Newman studied this deeply in the 1970s. She coined the phrase, the spiral of silence, about what had happened to Germany in the 1930s. Things were moving in an increasingly bad direction. She wondered why so many that privately opposed these things were saying nothing. She argued that there is a spiraling effect to silence, that when people fail to speak up, the cost of speaking up rises for the next person, and then even fewer people speak up, which makes it even harder for the person after that until a whole nation or culture has been silenced into submission. Does that sound familiar? Would the church today have spoken out in the 1930s? How about 1860s America? America. We want to say, of course we would have then. Would it surprise you that of the 18,000 German pastors, only about 3,000 spoke up against Hitler? That's one in six. What about slavery? Did pastors in America speak up during those dark years in our nation's history? to comfort these souls and to educate congregations on such things to encourage them to choose leaders not names to who shared God's views and I wonder if this all comes down to a sobering question do we really believe that what we believe is really real Please put your thinking caps on here. We can say we believe anything. It's easy to say the words. But we will always act on what we believe. Because if we really believe in the Bible, then hell is a real place. And there are eternal consequences for people who don't know Jesus. How can we not act? What if a building was going to be demolished and as they were finalizing all the explosives and getting ready to push the plunger down, what if you saw a little girl wander into the back of the building as they were getting ready? What would be going through your minds? Well, I'd hate to get yelled at by someone. Well, who am I to tell another person what to do with their lives? The Holy Spirit's in charge. No, no, you you tackle the worker. You say, don't push that plunger down. There's someone's life at very stake in there. You'll do whatever you can. You'll rip the wires out with your bare hands if you have to. Do we believe in hell as much as we believe in explosions? Explosions? In the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon ever preached, Jesus said that you are the salt of the earth, not the salt of your life group, not at your place of work. He goes on in the very next verse and he says, you, you are the light of the world, not of your family, not in your church. He says the whole world both times. In Mark 16, 15, Jesus says, go into the world. Go everywhere and announce the message of God's good news to one, that's easy, to all. Announce is an action verb, it's another command from Jesus. Or how about, of course, the Great Commission... Matthew 28:19 we all have this memorized go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the father and of the son and of the holy spirit and we saw that obedience today in those powerful baptisms and does anyone know what the next line is it's not even a period good guess separated by a comma and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. What? We're commanded to teach everyone? Teach everyone to obey? Is it possible that we've become ashamed or embarrassed or uncomfortable about the love of Jesus? But I haven't heard God's calling me, you might say. I'm glad God is speaking to you, Paul, but I haven't heard God's voice in this. Really? You haven't heard God's voice in this? Does reading count too? What if you texted your son while you were at work and you told him to clean up his room and then you came home from work and you saw the room was a complete mess and you say, didn't I tell you to clean up your room? He says, I read what you wrote, Dad. I got your text. But you know, you didn't use words. Would that fly in your home? No. wouldn't fly in my home. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego obeyed God's voice. They did not bow down to their circumstances. They stood their ground against a furious king with rage. Which brings me to my second key takeaway that I want to share with you from the story. Please make a note of this. It's not obedience if it doesn't have love. It's not obedience if it doesn't have love. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stood firm in their faith. They did so with kindness and respect. Reading excerpts starting from verse 13. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king of Nebuchadnezzar, said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? And their response If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from it, your majesty's hand. And even if he does not, we want you to know your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. The king approached them furious with rage, and they didn't take the bait instead they continued to refer to him as your majesty showing him courtesy and respect even as he was threatening to kill them in 1st peter 3:15 peter writes always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have but do this with gentleness and respect how often do we get that wrong What does it do for the advancement of the kingdom of God when Christians take to Twitter and Facebook with unkindness and mean-spiritedness? How can it make sense to disobey one of God's commands so that we can obey one of God's commands? How could it ever be a good idea to use a club to share the love of God with someone else? Please hear me. Truth can be offending but we can be offending without being offensive because if you're on the side of truth you should be able to make a point that is kind and respectful and if you need to be intimidating and call someone names then maybe it's not such a good point after all There is never an occasion to be unkind. We must lead with love and kindness if we want to change this world. How can we expect God to change our nation unless we first ask God to change the sin within our hearts? We move quickly to our third key takeaway from this story. Please remember this. It's about obedience, not outcomes. It's about obedience, not outcomes. As believers, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's only job was to be obedient to the Lord. It's only our job, too. They left the results to God. We read on in verse 24. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, Weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, Certainly, your majesty. He said, Look... I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. And many scholars hold the view that that fourth person was none other than the person of our Lord Jesus Christ, making an appearance some 600 years before he was born into this world as a man. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their own lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Even an arrogant king was blown away and moved by courageous faith. He even says, praise be to God. What an incredible shift in his heart. He doesn't fully convert, but he's more than happy now to add this God into his other gods that he worships. Therefore I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut up into pieces, and their houses be turned into piles of rubble, for no other God can save in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Friends, there is no way these fellas could have known what God was going to do. Hey, you know, it's not that bad in here after all. <laughs> <laughs> they knew that God would be with them no matter what. God promises that to each one of us. But that promise doesn't mean the truth that God always sometimes doesn't deliver what we want. And they were well aware when they uttered those six profound words. The God we serve will deliver us, but even if he does not, oh, those words, may they be on our hearts, but even if he does not, I will remain steadfast in my faith. I will choose obedience to my Lord, Jesus Christ. And so as I begin to wrap up, please let me encourage you with this challenge from Ephesians chapter 6. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes for our struggle is not against the flesh and blood nor but against the rulers against the authorities against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you have done everything, to stand. Friends, it's time we stand. We stand unashamed of the gospel. We stand for God's word and his truth. We stand as a follower of our Christ to serve him and to share his love with the lost and hurting people around us. So what does that actually look like then for you and for me? For each of you, it'll mean different things. Put it before the Lord and just ask Him to seek His will. For Monica and I, we're still trying to figure that out. When Grace was about seven, we had the chance to visit her classroom. At the time, Grace was going to a very secular private school in the belly of Chicago. Chicago. Christianity was almost non-existent in this school and we were invited to share anything we wanted around this holiday season and so we decided to put it out there and just share with the class the story of the birth of Jesus. And as we talked, they all sat quietly on the floor in front of us, all erect with their eyes open wide. And as I finished and said, and that's the story of how God came down to earth so that we can have hope and an everlasting life do you have any questions? (laughs) This little girl in the front with her hand up high, I'm like, yes, little one, please. She's like, my mom has a boyfriend. I'm like, what? Your mom has a boyfriend? Haven't you been listening to a word we said, you know? (laughs) I'm like, does your daddy know? I mean, I didn't, uh, uh, yeah. (laughs) It doesn't always seem to work out, but we keep trying. We do it anyways because it's about obedience, not outcomes, We don't know what God is up to. This right here is a goldfish brain. A few months ago, Monica and I asked if we could appear before a high school board to politely and respectfully just voice our concerns with some of the sexually explicit material in their library. It was the last thing we wanted to do. We give money to ministries like one that buys ultrasounds to help uncertain moms to see the little ones in the womb. Each of you will have your own examples, I know. And like I said, it won't always go how you think, but God doesn't waste anything. I close with this story. Most of you remember the Columbine Massacre in 1999. Thirteen people in that high school lost their lives that day. One of them was 17-year-old Cassie Bernal. Favorite movie was Braveheart. The gunman gave her a chance to live. He put a gun to her head and asked her if she believed in God. She said yes. So moved by this story of courageous faith, Michael W. Smith wrote a song about her called This Is Your Time. When I was preparing for this sermon, I watched this song on YouTube. It started with a short video clip of Cassie. That video clip was taken two days before the shooting. As I listened to the words and music, I just broke down and cried my eyes out. We don't have the time to play the whole song, but I do want to play for you the clip of Cassie at the beginning. I think that the way I'm advancing the kingdom is just being a loyal friend and a good example to non-believers and also Christians, just trying to not contradict myself and get rid of all hypocrisy and um, just to live for Christ. Two days later, she was with Jesus. The song begins by celebrating her courage and obedience to the Lord and then it powerfully and beautifully shifts to a challenge for you and me for us to also be courageous. It was a test we could all hope to pass but none of us would want to take. Faced with the choice to deny God and live for her there was one choice to make. This was her time. This was her dance. She lived every moment, left nothing to chance. She swam in the sea, then drank of the deep, embraced the mystery of all she could be. What if tomorrow, what if today, faced with the question, oh, what would you say? This is your time This is your chance. Live every moment. Leave nothing to chance. Swim in the sea. Drink of the deep and fall on the mercy and hear yourself praying, won't you save me? Won't you save me? This is your time. Friends, this is our time. Jesus, he's worth the discomfort. He's worth the cost. He's worth it because his death on the cross is the greatest sacrifice, the greatest discomfort, the greatest cost, the greatest single act of love the world has ever known. Do you know him? Will you follow him and put your trust in him, come what may? You can make that decision right in this room, right here, right now to commit yourself afresh to him. Will you do that? The life we couldn't live, he lived for us. The death we should have died, he died for us. The new life we need, he gives to us. That's the love of God that's waiting for you and for me. And God, I just thank you for Jesus. I thank you for sending your son into this world that he would come and live a life and die on that cross in that ultimate act of love and sacrifice so that we might have eternal salvation, Lord. I pray that you would just stir within us a courage to know what it really means and looks like, Lord, to live for you, to say yes to you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So with obedience, that doesn't count the cost. That's always with love and that leaves the results for God. Go now with courage to live in honor and give glory to our Lord Jesus Christ. God bless you.